If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the New Testament letter which Paul wrote to the Romans. Romans chapter 4. And we are particularly focusing our attention on verses 22 through 25. But to understand the context, let's begin back in verse 13. Romans chapter 4, verses 13. And I will read to the end of the chapter, verse 25. As you're turning there, it seemed right to spend a couple of extra weeks considering the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only because it is that time of year that, uh, that uh, some traditions call Easter tide, where we continue to focus on the resurrection as we look forward to Ascension Day, but also because we've got two weeks and then uh, Reverend Nathan Brummel will be with us. And I didn't want to start the Gospel of Mark and then have almost immediately an interruption when we're so early in that Gospel. Uh, and knowing several folks would be gone today, it also didn't seem right to start a brand new series when you say all the introductory things to help you along in the beginning. So we're going to focus our attention this week and next on other aspects of the resurrection that hopefully, if you've thought of, maybe have not thought deeply about, and hopefully will also be to your comfort. Once again, Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, with special attention on verses 22 through 25. Give your attention now to the holy inspired word of the Lord. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's, Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have spoken in various times and in various ways through the prophets to your people. But in these last days, you have spoken definitively and most righteously through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Speak to us again through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit as we receive this word with faith and obedience. We ask and pray for Jesus' sake, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever been in an argument with someone and midway through you realize that you're actually wrong? Never. <laughs> but you keep going anyway because you just need to feel right. You just got to feel right. It is a horrible thing to feel like you're in the wrong or to realize that you truly are in the wrong. Kids, have you ever been asked a question during school and you didn't know the answer to it, but you really wanted to be right? So you just guessed and you guessed and you guessed. Yeah, good, that's right. And they're all wrong, but you wanted to feel right. It's a very powerful feeling to need to be right. Uh, but it's embarrassing to find out that often, oftentimes it's not the case. We are in the wrong. Arguments come and go. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. But there's one relationship where we really must be right. We really must be right. The stakes are very high. And that is in our relationship with the Lord. We must be right when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. Now, we're making a jump here in this illustration. It's not as though we're in an argument with God and we need to be right and he needs to be wrong. It's not that kind of a relationship. Uh, Let every man be considered a liar, Paul says in Romans, the book of Romans. Rather, it's about God seeing us as right in his own eyes. That's what I mean by being right with the Lord. The Bible speaks about this reality in terms like righteousness and justice. We must be righteous in God's sight. We must be just in God's sight. It is not enough that we limp along in the Christian life and on the basis of our very best efforts, we did the best we could, it's not enough for us to find any assurance on that basis. Because God sees and he knows and he sees us limping along. Rather, we must be fully, fully upright, righteous in God's sight and considered to be just. That is the standard of God's law. Jesus himself says your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And those were the, the, the those folks were the icons of righteousness. In the days of Jesus and the apostles. In other words, he's saying this is an unattainable uh, and an impossible thing for you to actually get yourself. You must be more righteous than the Pharisees, which implied there means they're not even righteous enough. And look how hard they try. Look at how upright they try to walk. You must be right with God. And in this brief passage today, we learn that it is because Christ was raised that we are right with God. He was raised to make us right, to grant us this righteousness and this justice and to give us what we need on the great day of the Lord to stand upright in God's sight. Well, as we walk through this passage this morning, first, we need to understand what actually is justification. Justification. The word comes up at the very beginning, at the very end of the chapter, verse 25, that Christ was raised for our justification. What are we speaking about here? 
Justification is when God does primarily two things. He forgives and He declares. He forgives and He declares. He forgives you and pardons you of all your sins. And He declares you to be righteous in His sight. And you cannot have one without the other. What what does it do to be declared upright and righteous if you got all this sin that's still weighing you down and standing against you as a debt? That sin must be fully removed. It must be forgiven. And you must be declared righteous. Justification is when God counts a sinner to be righteous. And this is a sheer, gracious act. God is acting unconditionally and of utter grace. It's on His part. He is the actor. He is the agent. He is the one initiating. And it is one of the crucial doctrines of Holy Scripture. One of the crucial doctrines. Get this wrong, and not only will your other doctrines be all out of whack, but your attempt to live a godly life will feel always burdensome and never free. Because it will be proceeding from the wrong motivation. Your attempt to live a godly life. Hopefully these high stakes will become clearer as we go along. Look with me at verse 22. Paul says, His faith was counted to him as righteousness. There's that language of justification right there. We're not making this up. Justification is being counted righteous. Who is the his here? Whose faith was counted to him as righteousness? The, the his here refers to Abraham. Abraham. And the passage in quotation marks in your Bible is there because Paul is quoting from our gospel reading earlier, from our uh, gospel promise reading earlier of Genesis chapter 15. The Lord comes to Abram, still named Abram at this point, and he makes a promise to him concerning those who will come from him. Because he's already promised at this point in Genesis that nations will come from him and that all the nations of the world will be blessed through his offspring. And Abraham is really old. He is past the age where it is appropriate for men and women to still be having children. And he is beginning to doubt whether or not God is going to make good on this promise. In the end, as Paul says, he's not weakened in his faith, knowing God is able to to do what he promised. But here he comes to God with a question. And he says, how do I know you're actually going to do this? How do you know that a son is actually going to come uh, from my seed and from the womb of my my wife Sarah? And God makes a promise to him. And he says, I'm going to show you visually what I mean. As surely as there are countless numbers of stars in the sky, so surely shall you have offspring and nations will come to you. He's reiterating the promise. And here, this is the, the, the uh, reassurance that Abraham needed. And the scripture says that the Lord spoke these words and Abraham believed. What was he believing in? He was believing the Lord and the Lord's word. The Lord said, I will do it. And Abraham believed. And the scripture goes on to say, it, that belief, that faith, was counted to him as righteousness. 
Abraham believes the word. That's faith. That's the act of Abraham in in this whole scheme. That's all he's doing. He's believing the word and the promise of the Lord. And that faith is being counted to him as righteousness. Hopefully you you can hear in this passage, and in the passage in Genesis, that this is a legal transaction, transaction that's taking place. Something is being counted legally to Abraham. Abraham is believing and God is saying, I account you to be just and upright in my sight. It is a divine and legal declaration from God to this sinner, Abram. In other words, Abraham was counted righteous before God by faith alone. Not because he had done good works. Not because his faith was so strong. Indeed, in those moments, his faith was beginning to waver. It was a weak faith that leaned on the promise of God and led to his justification. It was not because he was such a good father. He wasn't even a father yet. It wasn't because he was such a good husband. Already at this point, he had given his wife up to a different king and said, why don't you stay there for a while so I can be spared? Not, not a good move. Okay, he's not justified on that count. He's not justified on the basis of any good works. Not even in part. Abraham believed. He believed the word of the Lord. And that faith was counted to him as righteousness. Of all the things that Abraham did that we should not mimic, we've mentioned a couple, and there were more. This is something that is universal to all believers that we must mimic. Paul says, verse 23, that this whole scheme, this whole, this whole uh, uh, idea of faith being counted as righteousness was not written down only to just record for us what happened to Abraham, but it is written down, verse 24, for our sakes as well. This is an important point because Paul recognizes that there's a dilemma of time here. Abraham is way back there and we are here. That's great that Abraham had faith and that God counted him as righteous, but that was then, this is now. Paul says, that's right. That was then and this is now. And it is the same scheme that is at work. Your faith counts you righteous in the sight of God. You are justified by faith as your father in the faith Abraham was justified before you. This same grace is at work. The same gracious work of God applies to you today, no less than to your father in the faith, Abraham. God gave a promise to Abraham. He merely needed to believe it. And that same promise has been given to us, but even better, because it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Abraham says, who's this seed going to be? And in types and shadows in the Old Testament, the seed comes forth through Isaac and through all the nations that come from, from him. But Jesus, Paul says, Jesus is the ultimate seed who has come. He is the one that this promise was pointing to. And now we see it fully as those who are on this side of the, of the glorious incarnation, death, resurrection, and glorification of the Son of God. We see it clearly, what Abraham saw from afar. In other words, we have even more reason to believe this promise 
than Abram did. Receive what exactly, or better, receive whom? Have faith in whom? Well, Scripture talks about this in a variety of ways. Most properly, our faith is placed in the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul here speaks in the broadest terms when he says in verse 24 that our belief, our faith must be in Him who raised Him from the dead. Meaning God the Father. Our faith must be resting in God the Father. I want to draw this out for two reasons. One, to point out that Paul is once again showing our solidarity with Abraham. Because in Abraham's day, he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord, who had not fully revealed himself yet with utter clarity as the triune God. Abraham believed the Lord broadly, generally, and that was counted to him as righteousness. The same applies to you and I. We believe in the Lord. We believe in Him who was raised, Jesus Christ, from the dead. That's the first reason, is to show that it is the same scheme at work with Abraham. The second reason I point this out is because we must not think of the Father as against us. Any idea in our hearts that God the Father is always angry and Jesus has to go and placate His wrath And that's all that Jesus does because the Father is just always angry. We must completely dispel this notion from our hearts because it is the Father's initiating love that has sent His Son. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. And it is God who has raised Jesus Christ from the dead in order that you may be justified. In other words, if the Father were always and forever angry with you and it's Jesus doing all this nice, gracious work on your behalf then God the Father wouldn't have raised him. But he has raised him. And he has raised him for your justification. And he has raised him because he loves you. He loves you as intensely and as magnificently as the best of fathers in this world, but infinitely better. Brothers and sisters, this is justification. That your sins might be pardoned completely done away with on the basis of Jesus Christ and that you might be declared by a divine decree to be righteous in the sight of God. That's justification. Well, then how is resurrection related to it? How's resurrection related to it? We read about the resurrection in this passage two times. We've seen it already once when it says... That it is counted to us, verse 24, it's counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus. And verse 25, who uh, was Jesus Christ who was raised for our justification. Twice in these two verses, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is brought to the forefront. And it is connected to justification. Uh, Well... At the broadest level, we recognize that both of these, Jesus' resurrection and our justification, are a kind of declaration from God. They're a kind of declaration from God. One is about you, and one is about Christ. Here's what I mean. If you're there in Romans, just turn back to the very beginning of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. 
And again, we are asking the question, what's the relationship between us being declared righteous in justification and Jesus rising from the dead in his resurrection? What's the connection between these two? We get a hint here in Romans chapter 1, and we'll, we'll see it a little more clearly in another passage in just a moment. Romans chapter 1, we're looking especially at verse 4. I'm going to read beginning of verse 1. This is Paul introducing the letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. So now we have the subject here that we need to keep in mind is the son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and verse 4, was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. You say, what is this declaration? When did that happen? He's declared to be the son of God? When did that happen? Paul says, in his resurrection from the dead. Uh, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, is constantly teaching and demonstrating that he is the son of God. And he, he... Uh, He brought it with signs and wonders and miracles and an authoritative teaching that even the Pharisees could not not, uh, reject fully. Nicodemus himself says, we recognize something's going on with you. But the great declaration, the decisive declaration that Jesus is the Son of God is him being raised up from death by the Spirit of holiness on that third day. He's declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. His resurrection is God declaring something. All right, then. See that first part of the connection. Our justification is a declaration from God about something, too. So is Christ's resurrection from the dead. Let's get some more clarity here. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. I'm sorry, I've said Second Timothy. I meant First Timothy. First Timothy, chapter three, verse sixteen. Everyone knows John three sixteen. First Timothy three sixteen is also a good one to know, because here, if you've ever wondered why we have confessions of faith, here's one in Scripture. That was already going around before the New Testament was written. It is the impulse of the people of God to confess the faith. And here we read in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This confession is centered, obviously, on Jesus Christ. And I want you to look at that second line there where it says vindicated. If you're reading from the ESV, vindicated by the Spirit. Now, again, depending on the the English translation that you're using, you may have a footnote there on that word vindicated. A little number, vindicated. And if there is that footnote there, then follow it down to the bottom margins. 
I just want to point out here, a, this is just a translation issue, because like in any foreign language, certain words can be translated in various ways according to the context. That word vindicated is the same word used throughout the New Testament for the word to be justified. To be justified. And so again, I believe that the King James Version here says he was justified by the Spirit. Pretty interesting. Paul has already shown us in Romans chapter 1, and you can turn back to Romans 4. Um, we'll, we'll be looking back in those verses again here in just a minute. Paul has just said that he has been declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. He's been declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness in his resurrection from the dead. And this early ancient confession of faith tells us that Jesus Christ was justified by the Spirit, vindicated. That vindication, that the language of vindication means that he was openly acknowledged before the world to be who he said he was, the almighty and eternal Son of God. God the Word who has come down in flesh, crucified and now raised. Uh, in other words, Jesus was justified that you may be justified. He was raised that you might be made right in the Son of God, in the eyes of God, and through the Son of God. Now, there is a key difference. There's a few key differences, but the, the core difference between our justification and Christ's justification is that there is no hint of sin in Jesus Christ needing to be forgiven. And there is no declaration of righteousness that is being given to him because he's unrighteous and needs that declaration. No, no, we are the sinners. We must be declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness and on the basis of his being raised from the dead and his vindication, his justification. That is the key difference between his justification and ours. He is already, already the almighty and righteous son of God. He's already righteous. We must receive that righteousness. We must get at it in some way because we must be seen as right in the sight of God. And there is no other way than to receive this righteousness which has been confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ than by faith alone. By faith alone. We are unrighteous before God and we need someone else's righteousness. He has been justified in his resurrection that we might be justified by faith in him who has raised him from the dead. That's the connection between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your being counted righteous in the sight of God. He was raised for our justification. Lastly this morning, what use is this to you? We've been speaking very uh, technically and, and uh, in minute detail about a doctrine and uh, doctrines come to us because they are of use to you. That's why our catechism constantly explains a doctrine and then says, of what benefit is this to you? What use is this to you? You see this throughout its exposition of the Apostles' Creed. The Creed is for you to take up, believe it, and then use it. So we must ask, what use is this to me? 
Brothers and sisters, I want you to think of different categories in your life that are meaningful in dictating your roles. You wear different hats in this life. You wear different hats. So what are those different categories that dictate those roles? What's your role in your family? What's your role in the workplace? Whether it's a literal place of work or in in our new uh, COVID days, your uh, virtual place of work. You still have a place in your workplace. What's your role in your other relationships? How do you kind of fit in with your friends, with your extended family, with your neighbors? Um, Kids, what's your role with your siblings? And how should you act when it comes to your parents? Now that you have these things in mind, and continue on, continue thinking through these different roles. How do these roles and responsibilities affect your view of God? Because they do. They do affect your, your, your understanding of God. They do in a variety of ways. But in particular, we are always tempted to think that our relationship with the Lord is somehow affected, founded on, grounded in how well we're living out those roles and responsibilities. Uh, Just to say it as simply as possible, if we've not done a good job in these roles, then we're tempted to think, God doesn't love me anymore. That is a constant burden on the conscience of the Christian. I have messed up again with whatever it is, and God doesn't see me as righteous anymore. How could he? I've, just, I've sinned again. The problem with that is that God sees far more than just whatever sin you have in mind. You cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. He sees us. He understands that we are sinners. And so we actually don't go far enough in recognizing our sin. It's not just that thing that's the one thing that's burdening your conscience. The one mess up with one of your roles. But multiply those, those different uh, uh, stumblings in your various roles. Multiply them. And then apply them to your mind and to your heart and to all your motivations. And that's the sum and substance of your sinfulness, which is always hanging over your head. Unless... God does something with that sin so that it no longer hangs over your head. Let's let that lie there for just a moment. I want us to feel the burden of this so you see the glory of the doctrine of justification and its wonderful use in your life. Because there are, these are important questions uh, that plenty of professing Christians end up Never settling. Plenty of professing Christians go to bed each night assuming that if they did their best today, then God is good with them. Or at the other end of the spectrum, that if they messed up badly enough, they have irreparably ruptured the relationship between God and themselves. Uh, you know, I didn't cuss at my very annoying coworker today. I'm good. I'm good with God. I didn't yell at my kids today. I'm all good. I'm all good with God. I want another day without stealing from the office. And I don't know. Hopefully you're not doing that. You need to repent if you're doing that. You need to tell your boss if you're doing that. Uh, I did not lust in my heart as radically as I tend to today. I'm right with God. Or on the other side of things. 
I've royally screwed up again today with these things. Therefore, I've, I've ruptured this relationship. Brothers and sisters, both of those things are just the two sides of one coin. And that coin is self-justification. To make yourself right in the eyes of God. You must be reminded today that you are not right with God because of any performance in your marriage or how well you are parenting or how well you do your job. You are not right with God on the basis of your works in any way. You are right with God because Christ has been righteous for you and because he has laid down his life for you and been vindicated as the son of God. Trustworthy is the one in whom you can place your faith. He's trustworthy. He's been raised from the dead. There's nothing else for him to prove. Your assurance today and tomorrow and on the last day must always be Jesus Christ crucified and raised for you. And then out of that comes the fruit of godly living. But you recognize that it's the fruit. It's what flows from this doctrine. When this is stored up in your heart and when you begin to meditate on the glories of Jesus Christ in the gospel, he who has been given for you, delivered up for your trespasses and raised for your justification, then with a transformed heart, a just and morally upright life flows. It doesn't add an ounce to your justification. It doesn't make you righteous before God. Not one iota. Jesus is the one who has been righteous for you. And you must ground your assurance in him alone. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead is the great historical sign that you can trust in him. It is the great fact of history that God the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, has raised his Son from the dead... And he has done so, so that you can stand firm on the great day of the Lord. Without fear. Because you are hidden in Jesus Christ. You are seen as just and righteous in his sight. And any good works that you have done in your life have been because he has done this wonderful work on your behalf. Brothers and sisters, if you want to live a godly and just life in the sight of God, a morally upright life, living according to his commandments, then rest in this assurance again today. That's where gospel fruit comes from. It doesn't come from somewhere else. It doesn't come from yourself. It surely doesn't come from there. It comes from knowing that you are right with God because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would write this word on our hearts that we might believe what you have promised and obey what you have commanded. These things we ask through Jesus Christ to whom with you and the Holy Spirit belong all honor and glory, world without end. Amen.